And thank you so much, and good morning again. The uh, elders, of course, have given a lot of thought to this series coming our way, and we'll be contacting other medical personnel as well. There's this wonderful developing uh, community faith-based nursing ministry that we have within our congregation that I think is going to be cutting edge in the way in which we're approaching the ministries of this congregation and really our ministries as well in this entire county. And so we're asking God's blessing. We're getting these brochures out throughout the county and hoping that it's going to touch lives and make a difference for God's glory. Be thinking already of people you want to invite, friends, and so on. So God blesses and God uses series like these. Well, I'd love for you now to take your Bibles and join with me because we've been looking comprehensively at the whole subject of the gospel. I'm trying to work in tandem with what is taking place in various adult Bible fellowships where we're examining in a rather in-depth form the nature, the substance, the significance of the gospel of Christ. And last week we looked at five distinctives of Christ's death, ending with the whole matter of him doing so triumphantly, being raised on that third day from the grave. So once we have looked at the genuine aspects of the gospel, now what Paul does for us is he wants to draw our attention to the ways by which we can communicate the gospel in a realm, in an age where counterfeit gospels seem to prosper and flourish and ask ourselves, how can I communicate authentic, true gospel in this age of spiritual tolerance? So we pick it up now, beginning in verse 6, down through the 10th verse of Galatians chapter 1, where he now writes, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men... I would not be a servant of Christ. Which is highly significant, that ending phrase, because he is speaking primarily to Jewish people, and they would know in their Old Testament that when you come across a phrase regarding the servant, it was typically the servant of the Lord, the servant of the Lord. But what he does now is he grips and grasps their attention by alluding to the fact, as a servant of the Lord, I am servant of Christ. Christ, and now they're once again forced to think about the gospel of Christ, which is what we're about to do as we look to our Lord now in prayer. 
So, Father, we commit to you the four-part series coming our way these Sunday nights. For not only what is shared pastorally, but as the medical community discuss case studies in front of us and interact and entertain questions, help us to be thinking about who to invite. Gospel will be presented, and we want to be able to do so, acknowledging the fact that life is terminal, but the good news of Jesus is eternal. And we want to bring that eternal perspective into the temporal tensions we face. So with all that in mind, Father, we are praying that once again that your, your hand of grace be upon us as we're ministering and as we're, as we're sharing, including what we are about to consider now. That you warm these hearts. That you engage these minds. To shape these wills. Because again, Father, we've come here to see Jesus and Him only. We're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. And in thinking and preparing for today's study, my mind went back to an advertisement of a few years ago where well, I really couldn't believe what I saw in the advertisement. It came from Holt Renfrew and focuses upon a, quote, future perfect micro-targeted skin gel, unquote, that, believe it or not, promises to give your skin just what it needs, luminosity for all those that woke up this morning worried about your luminosity. But here's what the ad reads, quote, The past is forgiven, the present is improved, and the future is perfect, unquote. And when I saw that advertisement, I thought about the gospel, the alternative substitute gospels of this world that promise much and deliver little, and the authentic gospel where the promise and the reality are one and the same thing. What fascinates us about Paul's writings to the Galatians is that he writes to people who are well aware of the gospel itself. And yet there is a desertion process that seems to be unfolding in the churches that he planted. The church in Pisidian Antioch in Acts chapter 13 where Paul went into great detail explaining the promise of the gospel of Christ. He then moved and talked furthermore in Iconium, only to face stoning and likewise again in Lystra Derby. But so burdened was he that the congregations embraced the authentic gospel that in the first five verses of this first chapter, he emphasized five distinctives of what the gospel truly entails. Ending with the triumphant aspect of the risen Savior, the validation of the gospel message itself. Now, you and I know that in the Treasury Department, the way in which they equip their agents to be able to detect 
a counterfeit bill is by studiously fixating one's attention upon an authentic bill. And once you recognize the authentic bill, you're able to, to pick out a counterfeit in a hurry. Now, Paul utilizes the same principle, and so in the first five verses, he offers you the authentic bill of the gospel and its five distinctives found there. But having done so now, he then holds up the counterfeit that is beginning to circulate in the region of Galatia. Galatia comes from the word Gauls, who came from France. Those that have a knowledge of recent history remember the name Charles de Gaulle. He was of the Gauls, you see. And so now, as you look at this, he is writing to people who were transplanted into a new region, and what he wants to make absolutely certain is that they don't therefore embrace a new gospel, but rather the promised gospel that came up through the ranks of Genesis onward, that there would be Messiah who would come to die for our sins. Having offered them the authentic gospel in the first five verses, he now preps them to be able to distinguish the true from the false, and furthermore, delivers three significant recommendations in verses 6 to 10 as to how you and I go about ministering in an age of tolerance, how to go about equipping people to distinguish the true from the false, and how, furthermore, to safeguard those that are prone to desert and go back to what is false. The first recommendation flows out of verse 6 into the first part of verse 7. And we're going to phrase it like this, number one, that when desertion from the true gospel occurs, comma, Respond instructively, verse 6 down through verse 7a. Now, as Paul has made his way back to Antioch at the end of Acts chapter 14, he gets word of the fact that the Judaizers have appeared on the scene in the various churches of what is now modern-day Turkey. And they're in essence saying that what Jesus Christ did on the cross is not sufficient you must add your works to Christ's work. Slowly then, this makes itself throughout the region of Turkey, and it comes to Paul's attention, and now Paul can't believe what is occurring, and so he responds with these words, I am astonished. They need to feel the heartbeat. They need to have a sense of the emotional depth. Paul is invested, as you and I are, in what matters most. Churches should not get caught up in secondary matters. Priority matters pertain to the gospel itself. And now you feel the emotional level rising within Paul. I've got to act. I've got to respond. 
It's roughly A.D. 48-49 time period. He's barely ended his first missionary travels. And already there's a desertion afoot. I am astonished at you, he says to them. Notice he does not address the false teachers. He is speaking to the ones being victimized by false teaching. He wants them to be equipped to distinguish the true from the false. In the Roman era of tolerism of many gods. So I'm astonished that you, not they, you are so quickly deserting. Notice with me then that he does not begin with a prayer. He doesn't furthermore begin with praise. He doesn't even begin with thanksgiving. Do you realize that in all of Paul's other epistles, he utilizes those aspects of an introduction? Prayer, praise, thanksgiving to God for the people of the churches, these churches that he had started. But so emotionally invested and burdened he is over what matters most, the gospel and the fact that they're deserting, that he's got to simply cut to the chase. Are you emotionally invested to know when and where? You've got to simply cut to the chase. Notice the word desert here. It carries with it the idea of to transfer allegiance. It was a military word utilized in the day of the Roman Empire to describe a soldier who at one time in his life was fighting for his country, but now is fighting against his country. And what Paul is doing is he's using a military picture to argue a spiritual truth that there is a desertion of the ranks that's unfolding. What fascinates me about the word desert here is that it's not a passive tense. It's a present tense. In other words, they have not yet deserted. But there's a process unfolding, and he wants to arrest this before it comes to a point of no return. And I thought about that when I came across this from a history account. There was a man named Christopher Ludwig. Believe it or not, his position in the Revolutionary War, he was Baker General of the Army under George Washington. First man to hold his office. But during the Revolutionary War, with General Washington's approval, Christopher Ludwig got behind the enemy lines dressed as a deserter and distributed loaves of bread that his bakery had made. He kept going to various British troops, informing them that they no longer needed to fight. They could live in this country and eat good bread. The troops, the British troops, began to desert by the hundreds. And General Washington awarded this man for his efforts. 
So now we remember the experience of the British troops and their inability to resist today. And so it's known today as bicentennial bread because the result of it was the desertion of the British troops. What strikes me here is that there is what we might call a false bread that gets distributed both in religious and in secular circles. Another gospel, a gospel different than the authentic gospel of Jesus Christ, where one can just simply add their works, preferably the works that they're good at or they value the most, to the work of Christ to make us more acceptable, you see, to God. This is what Paul is addressing. He wants to distinguish between the true gospel and the counterfeit gospel. So he starts with the authentic gospel, Bill, before he then produces a counterfeit gospel, Bill. Verses 1 through 5, the authentic, now he moves to the counterfeit, and he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting present tense, switching allegiance, a military term utilized here. But notice what comes next. The one who called you by the grace of Christ. Underline the phrase, the one. He is not saying, I am so amazed and so astonished that you are deserting your church. He is not saying, I am so astonished that you are deserting Paul and his efforts. No. I am so astonished that you are deserting the One. Speaking of God the Father, the One who called you by the grace of Christ. In other words, they are deserting someone, not something. So now what Paul is doing at this point is that he's responding instructively. Not merely emotionally. He is drawing their attention biblically to the One. God the Father. Who called by grace. Now, here's the problem. In an era of tolerance where the true and the false are allowed to co-mingle, people begin to move away from the idea of unmerited favor, which is simply a, a succinct definition of grace, and begin to think of merited grace. But that's a contradiction. That's an oxymoron. But you see, in an age of tolerance, people are willing to live with contradiction. That's true for you. This is true for me. That's right for you. This is right for me. So let's just all coexist spiritually and eternally ever after, you see. 
This is the danger where all of a sudden we no longer distinguish the true from the false, but the true and the false can simply coexist spiritually within the soul of the individual so I can do wrong and still be accepted by grace. I can believe what's false and still be approved by God. And lo and behold, what we find then is that we've got a low common denominator of spirituality that Paul would describe simply as another gospel because they have redefined grace and allowed unmerited favor, unmerited favor, to come under one umbrella, not two. And I thought of that when I came across a little story about Corey Ten Boom, who of course went through tremendous persecution during the Second World War. And she recalls in her earlier years in childhood, how her father went out of his way to be able to illustrate the concept of grace. She remembers reaching her limit at one point and crying out to her papa, as she called him in fear, Papa, how can we stand this? I can't take it anymore. Now, Corey tells us that she enjoyed a weekly train ride with her father, an experience he used to illustrate grace. Papa said to Corey, Corey, who bought your train ticket? Did you? Well, no. You did, Papa. So there was a price to be paid, is that right, Corey? Yes. And who paid the price? You did, Papa. Now, As the story unfolds, Papa then says, Corey, when does Papa give you your ticket? And Corey replies, when I get on the train, Papa. So to counter her fear, her father then replies, that's right, Corey, and that's how it is with God. When you get ready to board the train of persecution and fear, God gives you a ticket of grace. And he's already paid the price. Now what Paul is saying here is the price has already been paid. Do not commingle this idea of Christ's work with with our work where the sinful ones can add their work to the sinless one and his work. Otherwise, then, we have simply said that what Christ said on the cross, it is finished, is wrong. And Paul wants to address that head on, as should we. And so, look at the phrasing, I'm astonished. Feel the emotion? That you, he's not speaking to the false teachers at this point, are so quickly deserting, present tense, not past tense, The one, speaking of God the Father, not merely the Apostle Paul here, God the Father, who called you by the grace of Christ. So this is unmerited favor unfolding and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel 
at all. So now you respond instructively. And so if you've got a friend who is prone towards religious deception, you respond instructively. If you've got loved ones who are prone to respond to secular deception, you respond instructively. But you take them back to first things and authentic gospel, which is just how Paul did this, where he began with authentic gospel in 1 through 5 before he begins to address counterfeit gospel in 6 through 10. When desertion from the gospel occurs, number one, and respond instructively up to the first part of verse 7. And now you're ready for the second significant recommendation out of these verses. That number two, you and I are informed here that when distortions to the true gospel occur, diagnose accurately the second part of verse 7. So now you're going to function like a spiritual physician. And you are looking at this church, these churches. What are the symptoms? The symptoms are described very clearly in the second part of verse 7. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion. People are becoming spiritually confused. They heard Paul say this, but now they hear these teachers say that. They have pondered what the Bible teaches, but now they are hearing a rather eloquent sophisticated, well-credentialed individual say that. And he does so religiously. But remember in the Garden of Eden, the evil one spoke religiously. He came deceptively. He did not come and say, I'm an atheist. Instead, he approached rather alluringly and in essence said, let's have a conversation about God. He utilized a religious approach. And it cast a sense of confusion into the mindset of Eve. Now, what Paul finds is that there are religious teachers that have appeared on the scene. And they have begun to teach, and it has produced a sense of confusion within the setting of the Galatian churches. The word means to shake, to agitate, to stir up the pot, you see. Now, you look at that and you begin to ponder that. And you begin to think about that. And you're asking them, if that's the symptom, what's the cause? Here's the cause. They are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Not the gospel of Paul, the gospel of Christ. But note the word pervert. In that word pervert, you've got vert, you've got similar words that emerge, such as to convert. Or when you are looking at translations of the Bible, you are looking at various versions. What Paul utilizes here in the Greek wording is the idea that there are those who are appearing on the scene to corrupt 
and to reverse the gospel teachings and to lead toward a counterfeit. Now imagine if you are carrying on a conversation then with this false teacher. Here's the challenge. Do you believe that God is the creator? Certainly. Do you believe in the books of the Bible to be inspired by God? Absolutely. Do you believe that Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead on the third day? Sure. Do you believe that one is saved by grace? Certainly. Are you going to leave it there? Or are you going to then ask them, and what does saved by grace mean? Keep taking it forward. Keep bringing it on. Oh, we're saved by what Christ did in our circumcision. They would respond. But what you've got to do is to lead them to that point where they begin to realize that they have embraced then a spiritual, real contradiction in their soul. What they would describe as merited favor, merited grace, if you will, spiritually. Not two separate umbrellas, but under one umbrella. And in the era of tolerance, we find the realm of spiritual contradiction where the true and the false and the right and the wrong can coexist within one singular soul and the individual will not blink. And what is amazing is that they can attend even an evangelical church and still hold to these contradictions within. I don't want my pharmacist to function that way. When I go to get my prescription, I don't want him to say a little bit of this and a little bit of that. We'll just mingle it together. It's all one prescription. But if we expect the medical community to distinguish between the true and the false, how much more so in the matters of the eternal realm should we likewise seek to distinguish and to distinguish the true from the false. And I thought about that as we still get more information on what took place in the course of these days in Kenya. To anyone shopping at Nairobi's Westgate Mall, it would have seemed like just another store. But according to a Kenyan intelligence official, the small shop concealed an ominous secret. It was rented by the Al-Shabaab terrorists or their associates who within a year would carry out an attack on the upscale shopping mall. But you see, that store just simply blended in with all the other stores in that mall. And no one could make a distinction. In the realm of the true versus the false, 
Paul then starts with the authentic gospel bill as our treasury department does to equip its agents to be able to therefore, having so mastered the authentic bill, they can therefore readily discern a counterfeit bill that comes their way. In the waning, in the late days, the waning days of the Confederate armed forces, there was a Confederate bill that got nicknamed the Shin Blaster. A Shin Blaster was a bandage for a sore leg. But in the early days, it was used during during the time period of 1861-62, in particular, and on into 63, in the exchange of goods. Until it was shown increasingly that it was not authentic, and even those in the Confederate forces began to use Yankee bills once again. Now what God is saying here, then, is that because the false gospel lacks authenticity, It can't produce. It can't provide. Therefore, you must be able to distinguish. And so now, when distortions to the true gospel occur, there is a sense of emotional turmoil that begins to unfold. Where people begin to say, well, I've simply got to go on living this way, so I'll allow the true to mingle with the false. I'll allow the right to mingle with the wrong under one umbrella, within one soul. And in this age of tolerance, where there is no longer a lack of exclusive absolute truth adhered to, this becomes the new norm. And this is the challenge that parents and grandparents and co-workers got to be able to communicate in these difficult times in which we live. Which leads us then to this third significant recommendation now that comes out of 8 through 10. That thirdly, when distinctives between the true and the false gospel are blurred, distinguish clearly. Explain the difference between that religion and Christianity where on the third day Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. The evidence backs up the claim. It is the validation of his statement on the cross. It is finished. You cannot add to. You cannot subtract from. And so to press the case forward in making distinctions, Paul then says this in verse 8. He uses extreme illustrations here. Verse 8. Look carefully. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. Greek word, anathema. It was used to describe in the Older Testament the Hebrew word harem pertaining to the ban of a particular city meant for destruction such as Jericho in Joshua chapter 7, verse 1. He even goes so far as to say an angel even if an angel from heaven should preach this kind of gospel. And then we think about that one, known as Satan, who at one time was part of the angelic force from above. And then, to press the case forward in verse 9, 
As we already said to you now, I say again, if anybody's preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. And now he reminds them. And he blends a reminder with repetition. He wants them to make clear distinctions. And I thought about that as I was heading to the office the other day. And I saw a family setting up a yard sale in their front lawn. And as I drove by, I began to ask myself, what's the difference between a yard sale and a garbage pickup? It's how close you put your items to the street. But we live in a culture that doesn't make distinctions. There's simply a coexistence in the soul. But if there's a true, therefore there's a false. And if there's a right, therefore there's a wrong. And the difficulty is that just as in the Roman period where Paul had to make distinctions, so likewise do we today. We have to be able to articulate this where today the greatest virtue is the virtue of tolerance, even spiritual talents and religious tolerance and so on. But what we need to understand when it comes to religious claims in a world such as we live in today, equal toleration does not mean equal validity. The equal toleration of claims does not mean and is not the equal validity of each claim. Because on the third day, Christ's claim was validated. And so then Paul poses these questions. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or God? Or am I trying to please men? Question, question. And then this powerful statement delivered to the heartbeat of the Jewish thinker in particular, living in this Roman tolerance, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Not the Old Testament terminology of servant of the Lord. He now defines the Lord as Christ and brings an absolute claim into the conversation. So now, has God placed you in those kinds of settings? Have you found the ability now to be able to take the authentic gospel and now equip others to distinguish the true from the false and show that in this age of tolerance we have bought in to such a spirit within this age that we have lived with contradiction within our soul? There is no such thing as merited grace. We are saved by grace through the finished work of Christ and Christ alone. Let's stand together. So, Father, we want to be able to communicate this well because you have emphasized very clearly this is of primary importance. 
So in a world and in a country that is increasingly making fewer and fewer distinctions, I'm praying, Father, that once again, believers find a way to articulate what it is that you have done, who it is that you sent, what it is we should say, and share this in a manner, Father, that is honoring to you and eternally beneficial to them. And for those who come to these services spiritually curious, but have been willing to live with soulful contradiction, I pray now that he or she will put faith and trust in the exclusive one, the true one, Jesus, and him alone. And we'll give you now all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.